Good morning. Let me encourage you to open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Genesis chapter 3. Right at the beginning. If you don't have a Bible, want to use the Pew Bible uh, like this one, uh, you'll find that on page number 2. Okay, so let me just get out in front of it. Um, for those of you who know what is in Genesis 3, uh, you might be thinking, um, really? Uh, it's the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, the stage looks beautiful. The creative team did a great job. We're singing the songs. Yes, clap for that. Just starting to get into the Christmas spirit, and you're bringing us to Genesis chapter 3. Um, are you serious? Uh, yes, so let's go. Uh, we are in uh, an Advent series that we're starting on love. Uh, if you were here last year, you might remember we did an entire series on hope. And so... You might be able to start connecting the dots and that there's a theme running through here and that there are uh, traditional words that generally get associated with Advent and they are um, hope, love, joy, and faith. And so uh, if the Lord allows, I am in the midst of a multi-year plan um, to um, rather than just kind of take one week on each to really take an entire series to dig deep into each of those um, markers. And so this year it's love. And so um, with that said, I have to admit something um, that Advent technically starts next week. Um, if you go by kind of the structured traditional church calendar, it is the four Sundays before Christmas. Um, but with that said, I don't see anywhere in my Bible where we can't begin a week early. Um, and so this is going to be a five-week series that will culminate on Christmas Eve. And uh, Christmas Eve this year is on a Sunday. Uh, so you might have seen we begin to communicate what our plan is going to be uh, for Christmas Eve and that there will be no morning worship service that day, um, but the, rather there will be identical services at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock for you to choose from um, on Christmas Eve. So hope you can put that on your calendar and be just thinking through who you might be able to invite out um, for that service. But I, I also, I, I want to talk about Advent because I, I think this is a case where it's one of those churchy words where the meaning gets often assumed and never actually explained. Uh, so perhaps you've, uh, you, you've, you're new to church or, or you've kind of been around here and there and, and you kind of hear the word Advent said and you can kind of like just use context clues and, and, and assume it has something to do uh, with, church, with Christmas in, in one way or another, but you just don't know how. Um, or perhaps you're kind of like me as a kid where, where you kind of always knew Advent was done around Christmas, but, but you're not really ever sure how it was related uh, to the point where if somebody pulled you aside and were like, hey, like, can you tell me what Advent means? Like, you'd probably go blank. Or uh, you kind of want to take a shot in the dark and say, um, well, Advent is Christmas in Latin. And... Um, <laughs> And you'd be wrong. Um, but, you, I mean, you're, you're kind of right, because it is a Latin word. But it, it's really, it's simpler than that, okay? Advent means arrival um, or coming. And so an Advent season is a season of anticipation of something that is coming. And so um, early on, um, the church adopted that to be really a rallying around this anticipation that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ, and as the church, not only do we remember that kind of long-awaited arrival of the Messiah, but now currently we are still in a period of waiting in a very real sense today in that we await the long-desired second coming of Christ. We're living in between the times. And so when we think about love, love being one of those markers of Advent, I, I think we're immediately at a disadvantage in our culture in some ways. 
okay? Because in our culture and in our language and the way we talk, the word love is used for literally everything. Okay, so uh, just think about this. The same word that we would use for our deep love for somebody like um, that we're just in an intimate relationship with or, or a love for a God, that same word is also used to explain your love for ice cream or football or throw pillows. I don't even know, right? Whatever you love, um, that, that, that words just kind of get mixed up, and so it gets a little distorted. But, but here's what fascinates me about love is that it's really universally accepted in the world. Even those uh, with a completely different view on things of faith or God or, or whatever is kind of out there, the supernatural, because love, it's this almost objective evidence of transcendence. It's this evidence that there's something beyond because it's so real. Nobody would deny it's not real, but you can't really perfectly explain it. And so you might have somebody who might disagree with everything I'm going to say this morning, but, but they would have to admit that uh, they're not really quite sure why humans have this capacity for love that other aspects of creation don't, at least not at the extent that we do. I, I mean, just think about this, just the fact that we can be brokenhearted, that there's this ache for love on a personal level, I mean, specifically an ache to be loved. And, and, and now this can be outwardly resisted. Uh, perhaps you would be somebody who go, I would never admit that. I would never show that. I don't care about love. I don't need to be loved. I don't want anyone to ever think that about me. You might think it's soft to think that or it's, it's weak to ache for love. And so you're going to put up the front where it just doesn't matter to you. Um, I, I would just say this. You, you can do that all you want. But I always say that when you're lying in bed staring at the ceiling fan, it's there. And nobody else maybe sees it, and maybe nobody else notices it, and you just can't put up the front forever. And I think what happens is for those of us who do struggle to come to terms with, with love, that that's a thing, that's something we ache for, is that I instead of really admitting it, we'll just channel love in other ways that are by and large unhealthy. And we will show and express love for meaningless things that um, we just shouldn't, right? So um, you, you might say, oh, I don't care about love, I don't need love, but if my football team loses, I'm a mess until Wednesday. Like, don't talk to me until Wednesday because, like, just three days worth, I can't believe they didn't go for it on fourth down and they lost. Right? Or if your bank account isn't at a certain level this Christmas season, or it's not growing like it was in past years, uh, there's a bitterness and there's an angriness, and so now you've got to work harder, and you've got to work more, and you're not kind of channeling this love for money or sports in unhealthy ways, and so it's there, you might just not readily admit it. And so the question, what, what do we do with all this? How are we to be guided in thinking about and applying love? Well, unsurprisingly, um, love is all throughout Scripture. It's mentioned, based on your translation, um, anywhere from 400 to 500 times in the Bible. And the word does not first appear until Genesis 22. But the act of love occurs far earlier than Genesis 22 than we may realize. Okay, so granted, Genesis 3 is not a common place in the Bible to talk about love. It's a chapter of sin, of, of death, of, of warning, of punishment. But, but I want to show you how love plays a central role in Genesis 3. 
and specifically how the love shown in Genesis 3 begins this initial longing for, this, this initial advent of Christmas. And so my primary goal is not to get us into the Christmas spirit, but I do want to um, explore a few questions. Like, why is Christmas even necessary? And on the flip side, why is it so glorious? Why is it necessary? Why is it so glorious? Both answers come from a single verse in Genesis chapter 3. And I want to walk us through this story, and then we're eventually going to get to that verse and just stop and plant ourselves there. Um, so Genesis, first book of the Bible, right? I mean, the, the, the first place where we learn about everything in terms of origins of the world and how things work. And so Genesis 1 and 2, they provide us kind of two creation accounts. One is zoomed out, one is zoomed in, but they're, but they're two really side-by-side -side creation accounts where we are introduced to a sovereign God who created all things for his glory. And the crown jewel of his creation is man and woman. The only beings that are created in the image of God, we are told. And, and, and this man and this woman, they've been given a cultural mandate. They've been given a job. It says, go have dominion on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So you get to the end of Genesis 2 and all is well, right? We just saw our first um, marriage between a man and a woman. Things are going well. Honeymoon phase, yes and amen at the end of Genesis 2. And then you turn the page and you get to Genesis 3 and it unravels. Because in this garden, there is a single tree that God told Adam and Eve, you cannot eat from. And we get introduced to this serpent, this, this literal representation of the enemy, and he begins to tempt Eve. He begins to question God's command and rule. He begins to open her eyes to the possibility of self-power, of self-protection, of self-gratification. If she would just eat from the tree, God doesn't love you. He's actually withholding love from you. Go ahead, eat. And with that, let's look at verses 6 and 7, or you can follow on the screen of Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's incredible when you think about this. The woman, as she's explained here in the passage, she had it all. She had access to whatever she wanted except for this one tree, and yet her eyes were only set on this one tree, and she couldn't get away from it. She couldn't turn her gaze from it. I, I think this is the first example that we are prone to want what we can't have simply because we can't have it, and it's so irrational when you really think about it, and so um, listen, I have had plenty of opportunities to just feel the weight of the fallen nature in my own heart, in my own life, but as a father to young kids, 
I feel like God is just giving me more and more insight to the fallen world. Love them, all right? But they are giving me insight to that we are fallen creatures, okay? So um, now that our, our youngest, our daughter Brinley is one, and she's starting to uh, actually play with toys and enjoy playing with toys. And so uh, Rochelle and I are bringing some baby toys out back up from the basement that have been there for um, the last two years. And right, I'm just giving her some toys to play with. And so Caden, um, who is three, he hasn't cared about or seen these toys for two years. He's never once asked for them to come back. And so we bring them out. We, we, um, and we say to Caden, Caden, these are Bryn's toys. She's going to play with them. You can have all the other toys in the playroom. Three-year-old toys, just not this one. This one's for Brinley. And of course, what happens? Like, he only wants the one toy that, he, that mom and dad said he cannot have simply because he was told he can't have it. It's irrational, and it's ridiculous, and it's part of the fall, all right? Genesis 3 on display in my toy room every single day. <laughs> and so Eve, she takes the fruit, and she eats. And she commits the first sin of commission, actively doing something that God forbids. But then, did you notice in the text, almost subtly, we're told that the zoom on the lens comes out on this scene, and we find out what? Her husband's standing right next to her. Which begs the question, like, what was Adam doing this whole time? He was just standing there. He was just watching, which tells us that even before Eve bit the apple and committed the sin of commission, Adam sinned first. With the sin of omission, passively not doing something that God commands. Because God told Adam to keep and to protect, which includes actively defending against evil and to root it out. But instead, he's passive. Apparently, I don't know what Adam is doing right now. Like He's looking at the clouds, deciding what shapes they look like. like he's just standing there doing nothing. And, and this just... Um, this pierces me every time I see it because it leads me to say, Lord, forgive me for my passiveness. Forgive me of my unwillingness to do what God has called me to do because this is the true first sin. Adam's sin of omission is what paved the way for Eve's sin. Okay, so just a free word for husbands here. Um, failing to love our wives well. It's not just doing things we shouldn't, but even more so, it's not doing the things we should. Like leading and protecting. And a husband defending against his own passiveness to love well, his own passivity. Which, um, by the way, sometimes that does manifest itself in ways where you're just kind of removed and checked out and don't care. Um, other ways, failing to love well can manifest itself through emotional or physical abuse to show your power, to show your control over your wife. And listen, both are from the pit of hell. And both will expose how weak he really is. Father, forgive us for our passivity. And their eyes we're told, are opened after they both 
take a bite. And here's where I want you to dial in on. What do they do first? This is important. Before they go and hide, before they're banished, what happens? They notice they are naked. And they go and try and make their own clothes. Think about that. They don't even know what clothes are. They've never needed them. They've never noticed. They were unashamed, pure, free from evil, and now they sin. And the first thing they do is they go grab some leaves and try and cover up. Why do they do that? Let's read verses 8 through 13, Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is that that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice when God comes through the garden, who does he call for? Adam. He called to the man and said, where are you, singular you there? And in the rest of scripture, authors will look back on this event and they will put the blame on Adam. For he sinned first. The sin of omission that paved the way to Eve's sin of commission. This is not about an apple. This is not a kid's story. It's about failing to do what God has called them to do which leads them to actively doing what God forbids. And so God says, hey, who told you you were naked? Who told you about clothes? And now in this fallen state, we get the, we get the blame shifting, right? So Adam says, and like, Adam says, Lord, this wife you gave me gave me the fruit. And with that, like every man in the room was just like, oh no. <laughs> Adam, no. No, don't go this way. Don't do it. And Eve, for her part, says, no, the serpent deceived me. It's blame shifting. It occurred in the first sin. It's occurred ever since. It's when, it's when rebellion happens and goes, no, 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 no. It's not my fault. It's because of this. So God hands down his judgment, first to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to the man. And to Adam and Eve, he declares that, that this cultural mandate you've been called to carry out, now it's going to be intertwined with death and, and with brokenness and with hardship. And, and, and that work of dominion over the earth, now that's going to be hard. Thorns and thistles will grow alongside the fruit. And that work of being fruitful and multiplying will be riddled with pain in bearing children, literally and figuratively. Okay, I've been in the room for this. 
Like, I, I, I have not experienced it, but I mean, there is pain and childbearing, all right? And I was, I mean, fully admitting, probably more harmful and helpful in that room. All right, so first, our firstborn, I'm literally at Rochelle's ear, right, trying to be an inspiration, trying to give her courage. I literally said this in her ear, like probably screamed it in her face. I said, you can breathe later, just keep pushing. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. The doctor looked up and just said, Dad, no. <laughs> no, all right, and, and I was just like, okay, okay, breathe, breathe. Breathing helps. We skip the class, all right? Take the class. It's worth a Saturday, all right? Um, physical pain, a result of the fall. Man, but also this goes beyond just the, the labor room, right? This is, this is the fact that now in your being fruitful and multiplying, mankind will, will turn on one another. We saw this with their first two sons, Cain and Abel. One killed the other. And then, and then just ever since, there's just been... Um, the rise of systemic racism all throughout history, the, the, the rise of injustice, the rise of discrimination that still exists all throughout our culture, even in America, even in 2017, even if we choose to deny it. This is the brokenness of the cultural mandate as a result of the fall. So the Lord gets set to banish them from the garden. But listen, here we go. Before he does... There is a single verse that so often gets overlooked in this chapter, and it is explosive. I want to read verse 21. After the judgments, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. I want to throw the spotlight on verse 21 for the rest of our time this morning. It is the first shining example of God's unconditional and gracious love. And it is breathtaking. And we come to find that clothes, clothes, are objective evidence of God's love. A tough love, but a love nonetheless, and it puts us on a pathway that leads to Christmas morning. So I want to first look at the, the aspect of why is this tough love? Well, what's tough about it? Um, first, this act affirms the magnitude of sin. It affirms the magnitude of sin that, that now that creation has been fractured and they have rebelled against their creator, what ought to be is not what is any longer. And, and there's a change in the relationship. There's a change between God and man vertically. There's a change between man and woman horizontally. What ought to be is unashamed nakedness that was present at first, that was representative of a relationship. And no shame, no divisions, no opticals. But now that's not the case anymore. With sin comes shame. And being clothed is visible outward evidence of this inward reality. Second, this act affirms the separation of sin. 
Adam and Eve, they felt this right when they bit the apple, even if they couldn't define what just happened, because once they sinned, they tried to clothe themselves. They tried to cover up their own shame. They, they, they wanted to reinstate themselves. They wanted to make up for it. They wanted to cover it up for them themselves, and they couldn't. It was a pathetic attempt at clothing themselves, and their efforts were futile. Nothing they did, nothing they wore would ever recapture the loving, perfect relationship they had with God and with one another. And so there's an internal separation that comes. Uh, John Piper comments on this by saying, um, quote, God ordains clothes to witness the glory we have lost. And it is added rebellion to throw them off. Glory is lost. Death is now in the picture, and separation has occurred. Third aspect of tough love is that this act is a confession of sin. The clothes in this way, they don't conceal shame, they confess it. They are evidence that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, and we're all feeling it. There's, there's an ache inside all of us. Whether or not we know why it's there, it, it's an ache for love. It's an ache for a reestablished relationship with our Creator. And again, most people don't even know what that is, but we all feel it on some level. And in this way, sin and rebellion, it's not just a story on a page. It's not just an apple on a tree. This is our story. Listen, if I were written into Genesis 3, God would have to clothe me too. It's not just a problem out there in other people. It's a problem in here, in us. And we too would like to blame shift when confronted Yes, God, I, I sinned, but, but look at this place you moved me to. Look at this family you put me in. Look at this job you called me to. Look at this friend group that you led me to. It's just blame shifting to justify reasons why we sin, and we all do it, and we all rebel, and we do it because the same reason why Eve did it, why Adam did it, to pursue self-power pursue self-gratification, to pursue self-protection. But when push comes to shove, we'd be sewing fig leaves together as well. We'd be trying to cover it up as well, and we would be hiding from God too. And it's real. And the reasons our heart ache for love is just as strong as evidence for clothes. There's internal, there's external, uh, but it's been lost what we need most has been stripped away. That's tough. To put it mildly, that is tough. God didn't just say, uh, God didn't come into the garden and come to Adam and Eve and go, you know what guys, it was, it was just this one time. It's not that big of a deal. It's an apple, whatever. Who cares about an apple? But let's just move on, right? I'll, I'll settle things with the Holy Spirit. We'll figure it out. I'll, I'll go to bat for you. Let's just move on. It's one sin. Who cares? It's not what happens. This is the enormity of rebellion. And so church, let us never water down sin to be no big deal. 
Let's not fall into the trap of just saying, you know what, it doesn't hurt anybody else if I do this. Or what's it matter if I don't do that? Sins of commission. Sins of omission. In fact, maybe you might be sitting here going like, man, you got to be kidding me, man. You, you, you church folk, you make way too big a deal about this. And yet, we now know from the word that every ache you feel, every struggle we go through, every tear that is shed, every pang of pain that we feel, it flows from Genesis 3, from this sin. It fractures everything, and God can't overlook it. He won't overlook it. He would be denying himself if he did. This is why Christmas is necessary. But what makes verse 21 so explosive is that not only does it affirm the enormity of sin, but it also at the same time points to and magnifies the enormity of God's love. In this way, I think this verse is a microcosm of the entire Bible, that, that the bad news is really bad. And yet, that's what sets up the good news to be so good. Verse 21 is why Christmas is necessary. And at the same time, verse 21 is why Christmas is so glorious. Because while it is tough, it's tough love. So what's loving about God's act of clothing Adam and Eve? Let's go. Same thing. Three ways. First, it affirms God's promise of cover. That one day, it will be God himself who makes us whole and covers our shame for good. And since Adam and Eve's own efforts were futile of clothing themselves and it fell way short, God said, I'm going to do it myself. So let's not forget here, like God doesn't owe Adam and Eve anything here. We get that, right? Like, like once they rebel against them, he doesn't owe them anything. Like he would have been just as justified to see the rebellion and just be done with them altogether. Just banish them, not just from the garden, but from the earth. But he chooses, out of his great grace, to not kill them, but clothe them. And still task them with the cultural mandate to have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply. This is the first example of unconditional love in the Bible. Where Adam and Eve were the recipients of love even when they didn't deserve it. And as we think about that, isn't that the highest form of love? True, just unfiltered love isn't um, paying somebody back for what they deserve. It is loving and choosing to love um, despite imperfection. To love in the midst of brokenness. To love even after being wronged by somebody. That's the kind of love we long for. Where we are loved even while we are truly known. Where we can be honest about our shortcomings and yet assured that we are loved. We cannot cover our own shame. But sinners like me can find solace in the truth that he covers my shame out of his great love for me, for you, 
Second, it affirms the promise of sacrifice. Did you pick up on the small detail of how he clothed them? He used garments of skins, animal skins, which means in order for them to be clothed adequately, an animal had to die. This required the shedding of blood. In the midst of God's judgment on Adam and Eve, we see the first sacrifice of innocent life in order to cover the guilty. And sacrifice is at the heart of God's love. That in order to extend his grace to sinners and protect the perfection of his holy name, there must be an atonement for sins. There must be a shedding of blood of the innocent to save the guilty. Hebrews 9 says exactly this, that, quote, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the scandal of the gospel, that the innocent are killed and the guilty go free. And throughout the Old Testament, it was animal sacrifices that would atone for the sin of God's people. Um, But those were not permanent solutions. They were merely shadows of what was to come. For it is only by the arrival and sacrifice of a perfect human that salvation would come. And so right from the get-go, this creates a longing for how can that actually happen? How can it happen that there would be a perfect human when we're all fallen? Which leads to the third. This act affirms the promise of redemption. This is where Christmas becomes so glorious. This is why the advent was so desperate. The, the, the anticipation of, a, of, of an arrival. This, this period of waiting for one that would deliver sinners. How can that actually happen? One who would, by his sacrifice, be used by God to reinstate a vertical relationship of love that was lost and a horizontal relationship of love that was lost between Adam and Eve and God, Adam and Eve together. How can that be reinstated when that was lost in Genesis 3? And there's this love that they ache for, this love that we ache for, this this, this family love. This parent-child love, this, this sibling love, this, this, this friendship love, and an everlasting love that, that we get glimpses of it here and there, some more than others. But even in the best of families, it falls short for what we're really longing for. And it is through this one that what ought to be is once again what is. Perfect union with our Creator. And it is the new clothes that Adam and Eve wear on their way out of the garden that serves as evidence for this. And so Genesis 3, rightly understood, with verse 21 popping off the page, sets us all on a pathway. It sets us all on a journey. It sets the Bible on a search. A path that gets traced all throughout Scripture where we see the beauty and the horror of the cultural mandate being carried out in the fallen world. We see the fruit rising with the thorns and the thistles and it's up and it's down and it winds all around. And then it goes straight through a little obscure town named Bethlehem where finally 
under a starry night, a baby was born. Not just a baby, but a son. And not just the son, but God's son. The only one who could shed his blood so that sinners can go free. The one in whom love is seen and love is heard and love is felt and love is empowered and love is carried out. The gloriousness of Christmas is centered on the love of Jesus Christ who has come to seek and save the lost. Who when we put our faith in him, our full trust, our lives, our everything gives us new clothes Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The call to the church is let us stop clothing ourselves to cover our own shame. Let us allow the gift of Christ to cover us in full. And let's let the world see our new threads. To make much of him. To make him known this Advent season. And so along with just letting this wash over you personally, who who, who is one person God has called you to reach in the next five weeks? Who is one person God can use you to be the means in which he sets out a new pair of clothes this Christmas season? Who do you want to bring along to see and experience the tough love of our God? And you get to the end of it and you think, man, clothes. Who would have thought? Clothes as they witness to to, to past failure and to future glory. Christmas is necessary because of our sin. And Christmas is glorious because of his love. Let us worship. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for Genesis 3. We thank you that even in the midst of a story about brokenness and rebellion and sin that we don't just read on a page, but that we feel. We thank you, Lord, that that doesn't end there, but that it puts us on a pathway that leads us to a baby boy born in a manger that came to seek and save the lost. Father, let us worship in that this morning. Let that be a reality that we walk in, that while we are sinners, we are saved in full, fully justified, back in right standing with you and with one another, Lord. Let us worship. Let the world see that in us and through us. And we pray this Advent season would be one to remember. It's in your name we pray. Amen.